the Appellate Redeemed. We consider especially our Gospel reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. And as we begin, we'll consider briefly a quotation from the famous American that everybody paused to remember or celebrate a little bit this past week, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And this is what he said. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience and comfort, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands at moments of convenience and comfort, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And you could imagine sitting there in Nazareth or nearby Cana or Capernaum, you know, within a day's walk easily, scrolling your Facebook, and you see the event. Jesus will be here this Saturday. Okay, I'll go. And there, there at the synagogue, Jesus comes to his hometown. This prophet that has done amazing things already. This prophet who had challenged the money changers at the temple and flipped the tables and drove out the animals. This prophet who was baptized by John the Baptist. And people say that, that there was a voice from heaven when he was baptized. This one, and the reports had been trickling in from Cana and that wedding that had taken place recently. Some had said that they were out of wine, while other people were saying that it was the best wine that they had ever had and the party could have gone on for another half a week. And this Jesus, the hometown boy, is finally coming home to Nazareth, home, coming to his home church, coming to his home congregation where he has grown up and where he had attended Saturday school, you know, <laughs> I guess the Jewish version of Sunday school, if you will, where he had sat in the back, maybe cried and needed a diaper change mid-service, where he had played with quiet toys and where he had sat and listened and learned. And this Jesus who was going to be coming and speaking to the very people that he had grown up with, to the neighbors who had, who had cooked him some, baked him some cookies when he was a child, to those who had always seen him playing in the streets, to some of the young people who were now older people and who were his own age, people who had known him, people that maybe he had carried out some task or job for if he had worked as an apprentice with his stepfather, Joseph. Joseph was fairly well known as a craftsman where there's even a, uh, in existence a plow with his inscription on it, Joseph, Joseph of Nazareth. Nazareth. And this Jesus is coming home. And the people are waiting and expecting. Maybe. Maybe today is the day when I will finally never have to, you know, wear glasses again and Jesus will correct my vision completely. Maybe today is the day when of all the miracles that he could do, such as creating wine for a wedding, maybe today is the day when Jesus will snap his fingers and he'll do something cool for us too. We could have an impromptu church picnic without having to do any of the prep or any of the cleanup. 
Maybe today is the day when we should bring all of our sick people and the friend who recently got injured in the accident, and we should bring them to Jesus, exactly as the Gospel of Mark records, that when Jesus was in Capernaum at the house of Simon Peter, the people were lined up from dawn, from before dawn until dusk, saying that maybe we can get a miracle from him. They've got these expectations, and Jesus is in his hometown, and these are the people who know him best. These are the people who have a relationship with him. These are the people who, among all the people of Israel, who maybe rightly could expect a little bit of help or assistance from him. And even beyond that, these people have respect for the word of God. Here they are, they've come to church on their regular church day, and Jesus is in church exactly as was his custom. And they're ready to listen. Jesus isn't squaring off and facing off against an antagonistic crowd. He isn't arguing with university professors or trying to, trying to get past their objections just long enough to preach the word of God. These people are coming because they treasure the word of God and they want to hear the word of God and they want it explained to them and applied to them. It's a willing audience because they know Jesus. It's a willing audience because Jesus is there with the word of God and that's what they've come to hear and they're amazed. Look at the way that, um, that Luke relates it for us. Verse 22. They all spoke well of him and were impressed by the words of grace that came from his mouth. And they kept saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Of all people, of all people, you would think that, that these people would have their expectations in line. They've come to hear what Jesus has to say. And they already have a relationship with him. And they come that day with expectations. Expectations in and of themselves aren't a bad thing. You can come here today expecting to hear um, God's word explained and applied to your life. You can come to God in prayer and expect that he will hear and that he will answer exactly as he promised. You can come and you can expect that he will be present in his supper exactly as he promised and that he will continue to do the spiritual work of reconstructing your heart through his word exactly as he promised. Expectations aren't a bad thing. But these people of Nazareth bring another set of expectations. Another set of expectations that, that's a little bit more. That isn't an expectation based on faith. They come with an expectation for miracles. They come with an expectation that, that Jesus will do for them exactly as he did elsewhere. Why don't you do what you did, what we heard that you did in Capernaum, in Cana. And is it possible that when 
Martin Luther King had said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands at moments of convenience and comfort, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. That here we have Jesus who walks into a group of people whose expectations are out of line. And he stands there precisely for that reason. For a time of challenge and controversy. And we read through this and we hear it and we hear what happens. They drive him to the edge of the cliff and they want to throw him over the cliff because, because of what he says. I mean, that's, I guess, uh, the top of page four in your bulletin when he says that there were all sorts of people needing miracles and yet God sent his prophets outside of the land of Israel that they had come with this expectation, these expectations that, that Jesus would do things for them or change their life in a way that was what they wanted on their time frame. And it would be the easiest thing in the world to, to read this account and to say, well, if I were there, things would be different. If I were there, things would be different. For heaven's sakes, I've never tried to take Jesus to the edge of the cliff and throw him off. Um, not even you know, up the overpass here and throw him off over there onto the highway. Who would do that? If Jesus Christ were here, nobody would want to do that. If I were there, things would be different. The attitude would be different. Is that the case? Because I, I, I understand that we don't typically give voice or even understand the expectations that we sometimes have. But we kind of have to see them maybe through the rearview mirror <laughs> or kind of sneak up on them through the side door. The expectations that we have for Jesus. And I think the easiest way to, to see what these expectations are or to understand them is through the side door of, of our emotions. What are the things that really get us worried? What are the things that really get us frustrated? What are the things that really um, maybe anger us or distress us? And we come here as whole people, head and heart, we come here with maybe that week's worth of frustration or anger or just feeling drained and wishing that things would be different. And sometimes those emotions can give us a side view, like a side door view to some of the expectations that we have for our Jesus. If I'm a Christian, then why? then why does this have to happen? Then why does it seem that you know, God has all the power in the world and yet this, this pandemic drags on and all the attempts to, to control it and all the fallout from it and it's just article after article of what effect is this going to have on our children and on our churches and you just shake your head and you look that, at that and, I mean, tell, <laughs> let me tell you, as a pastor, you know, I get pretty much all the church marketing emails that offer all the solutions to all the problems of this pandemic. 
and they all start with the same headline, that attendance is going down, that God's church is going to crumble and fall apart, and how could God let this happen? (laughs) And I, I know that some of those are overstated. But maybe that first side door gives us the understanding that when you look at your emotions of the past week, emotions that I don't want you to leave out in your car to take with you again when you go back home, <laughs> emotions of all you know, the, the anger, the frustration, the just feeling spent of the past week. You're still a Christian when those things rise up in your heart. And our sinful flesh wants to turn it around and say, well, at the very least, here's what Jesus should do for me. He should make this easier to carry. He should give us a solution, at least to, to lighten my load a little bit. At the very least, you know, maybe, maybe it's not feeding the 5,000, but at least feeding my family for, for less than 100 bucks for two bags of groceries. Right? Maybe that first side door of, of understanding the expectations that sneak up on us, that first side door of emotion really lets us see our hearts from the other side. That the emotions we have can't be separated from the fact that you are a Christian. And it's good to talk about them. Because it's this fallacy, this idea that if I were there, things would be different that I wouldn't be among those. I would stand at the door and bar the door and say, don't throw Jesus off that cliff. But this sinful flesh doesn't want him in my life. The other side door is, um, is probably the more rational arguments and, and the, the ideas that try to appeal to our knowledge or try to set up a logical idea that we get on board with. And normally it's, it's, it's something kind of like this. If God really loves me, and if God has all the power in the world, then he would change this. He wouldn't let that happen. And it tries to set up God's love and God's power in opposition to each other so that either God isn't loving, but he's still all-powerful, but he doesn't care. Or, God loves, but he can't do anything about it. And I would say that's probably 80 to 90% of the, the rational objections, that other side door, where our expectations for Jesus are revealed. Setting up this contrast as though there were some sort of, of contrast within God. Some sort of... Yeah, contrast is the only word I can think of offhand. Some sort of disparity within God that either he is loving or he is almighty, but he can't be both. And for all the evidence you want, just look at my life, look at my heart, look at the world around me, look at our society, look at my family, look at my marriage, look at my culture. Surely, surely God can't be both loving and almighty because if he were, it would be different. And that's nothing else than another expectation for Jesus. Another expectation that Jesus will act the way that I expect on my time frame. 
and that the blessings that he promises in his word will happen and they'll take place in exactly the way that, that I want and that are most maybe most convenient for me or in the ways that are most encouraging and easiest and simplest for me because exactly as our Friday afternoon Bible class talked about, deep down we hate the idea that that pain or suffering can be one of the ways that God wants to bless us. And our expectation is that pain or suffering has no place in our lives. That idea of if I were there, things would be different kind of falls on its face. But the measure of a man is not where he stands in times of convenience and comfort, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. And Jesus came to proclaim for a time of challenge and controversy. Jesus, he's, he's standing. I mean, yeah, the note is that he rolled up the scroll and he sat down in verse 20. But that's how they preach, you know, here in, in our situation. Pastor gets up and stands up to preach. Same idea. That there, the measure of a man is not where he stands in times of convenience and comfort when all the crowds are clapping and calling for more, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. And he is there to proclaim his work. He is there to proclaim his good news. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he says, that, that the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61 are the words of this Jesus, the Son of God, speaking through the prophet 700 years earlier, describing why he came to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. And if you look at at the first reading, it kind of goes on from there. That Jesus stands there at a time of challenge and controversy, and what does he do? Even in his public ministry, he doesn't do his work by just snapping his divine fingers and doing another miracle. He stands there on the word of God, proclaiming the word of God to people whose natural reaction is to reject it. At a time of challenge and controversy, he says, this is what I've got, the word of God. This is what I'm here for, to proclaim freedom for you. And yes, they, they drive him to the edge of the cliff to throw him off, and he walks back through. He walks back through that crowd because his place, the place where he loves to be and wants to be, is standing with his people at every time of challenge and controversy. That our God isn't a God who is simply, you know, nice to think of during a time of convenience and comfort, but he is a God who stands with us during times of challenge and controversy. He is a God who stands with us to proclaim who he is and what he has done, to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to say, yes, he will still accomplish miracles, and some of those miracles might be unseen to our physical eyes. And some of those miracles might take 50, 60, 70 years to happen. But this Jesus, 
who came there to proclaim the kingdom of God is the one who stands with his people during times of challenge and controversy. He comes to proclaim who he is for the sake of his people so that you and I and, and those people there in Nazareth um, who have the hidden expectations of our Lord that you and I can know that Jesus has addressed your deepest need, the need for the forgiveness of sins, that he has poured on you the oil of joy and gladness, even during the time of mourning, that he has crowned you with love and compassion. And how do you know that? Because Jesus still stands with his people during times of challenge and controversy. He still stands with his people as he stands here to share this word. He stands with his people during times of challenge and controversy, and he wants to use that same word to, to speak to your heart, to address you not just logically, with the logical conundrum that, yes, our God is both loving and almighty, and sometimes there's a greater purpose in what God allows or even sends to our lives. And sometimes the blessing that he wants to bring to our lives is something that you or I would, at least to our eyes, would not consider a blessing. And sometimes that blessing is simply opening the door to be served by our fellow Christians. Or throwing up our hands and recognizing what's been true all the time already, that all I have is you, Lord. All I have is your word. All I have is your promises. And all I have is you standing with me during times of challenge and controversy. Could think of it this way, that um, you know, they're, they're there in Nazareth and they're, they're live streaming to YouTube or um, I, I guess the, the Old Testament version of YouTube from 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and they're live streaming and all of a sudden the, the congregation gets up and grabs Jesus and pushes him out the door But Jesus walks through the crowd despite their best efforts to grab onto him, to hold onto him, to push him over the edge of the cliff. That their attempts to grab him and hold onto him and throw him over the edge of the cliff are met with only empty air. And their attempts to push him are met with only the grinding of sandals on dirt and no accomplishment as he walks on through the crowd. That this is the power of our Lord. But he doesn't stake his work and his ministry on that miracle. He does that miracle so that he can walk to be with his people for every time of challenge and controversy. He walks back through that crowd so that he can walk up Mount Calvary. He walks back through that crowd so he can walk out of the tomb he walks back through that crowd so that he can stand there at that baptismal font and be here in his supper and say, Dear Christian, dear Christian, whatever your expectation was today or tomorrow or last year, you can probably check out the rearview mirror or the side door of, of emotion or the logical argument and see some of those expectations for yourself. but he stands with his people to say, dear Christian, 
I know your pain. I know whatever challenge or controversy it is that you happen to be carrying. And he stands with his people to proclaim his word again, to say, take and eat for your forgiveness. Take and drink to be set free again to be reminded of the crown that he has placed on your head, to be reminded of the comfort that he wants to bring to your life through proclaiming that word. And that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands at times of convenience and comfort, but where he stands at a time of challenge and controversy. And Jesus goes to Nazareth and it becomes a time of challenge and controversy as the people reject the word. But he walks back through the crowd so that he can stand with you, so that you can know whatever the challenge, whatever the controversy, whether it's today, tomorrow, next year, or a decade from now, that this Jesus, this Jesus who proclaims his word, is with you too. Amen. Amen.